You know, I kind of fell in love with Francisco as a character and with his family, and they all appeared kind of fully realized. I didn't feel like I needed to do a lot of work to. I keep picturing Francisco in those last days before he went missing, that summer in 2002. He and Monica ran into all kinds of problems. Lynn Manuel Miranda is actually from Inwood, which is the next neighborhood. Uh, it's posh, right? It's not posh. It's it's, it's just less rough. <laughs> He's done a lot to sort him. He didn't want to move into his mother's house. He really didn't want to. But moving there meant he'd have a safe place for the kids to come stay. He wasn't going to be able to afford a place big enough for them on his own. And he couldn't risk the unpredictability of staying with friends. Enormously different it is. So, certainly... In terms of the place I grew up, I felt like the only way I could go back there was by writing about it. Fiction as time travel machine. That works. Hello and welcome to the Fictionable Podcast with me, Richard Lee. Here in London, the skies are grey and the wind is cold. Time for a new set of winter stories and a new bunch of magnificent contributors. In the next few weeks, we'll hear from Richard Smith, Ariel Mark and Jack, Robert Newworth and Liam Hogan. But we're kicking off this winter series with Linda Mannheim, who spoke to us via the magic of the internet from Berlin. We started with a little from the opening of her short story, Those Last Days. I keep picturing Francisco in those last days before he went missing, that summer in 2002. He and Monica spent one last holiday together with the kids, had a cookout in Riverside Park on Independence Day. The city was still on high alert, but there they were, acting just like a happy family two days before Monica and the kids moved out. If he pretended that Sunday wasn't coming, it all seemed fine. The kids running around and pointing up at the fighter jets patrolling overhead, the little red lighthouse sitting there in the background, and the green banks of New Jersey on the other side of the river. Monica was right, he conceded. Patterson wasn't far. He could get there to see the kids in half an hour. They could come see him. And look at them now. He and Monica were being reasonable. He'd seen couples go crazy, threats, screaming, and the cops showing up. They were going to be fine. He didn't want to move into his mother's house. He really didn't want to. But moving there meant he'd have a safe place for the kids to come stay. He wasn't going to be able to afford a place big enough for them on his own, and he couldn't risk the unpredictability of staying with friends or moving in with someone who wasn't family. And the smoke rose from the grill, and he looked at the kids, and he looked at Monica, who, now that she was leaving, was easier to be with, and generous even. And as he stands there cooking... She even comes over to him and puts her arms around his waist. What a beautiful family they were. And then it's Sunday. Sunday, with the U-Haul trailer outside, and all the neighbors seeing, and some of the neighbors thinking they were all moving, and Shavi was the friend helping them. But if they look closer, they'll see Shavi is sitting in the front seat of the car, tapping on the steering wheel impatiently, leaning out the window to eye Monica. There's no backslapping encouragement, no joking with Francisco, no goofing with the kids. And then Celia, the youngest, says she doesn't want to go. Monica's face falls. 
And she says, in the little high voice she was using more and more in those days, we're moving to the house Shavi got us. And Celia shakes her head. And Luis, the next oldest, confesses that he doesn't want to go either. And he asks Monica, why do we have to do this? And Ruben, the oldest, just stands there stony. He will not declare his allegiance, but he has come to the conclusion that the adults deserve only silence. They're the ones with the problem, so let them deal with it. Francisco crouches down on his knees to talk to Celia. There she is with her pink backpack and her Britney Spears t-shirt adamant in her refusal to go. Hey, Francisco says to her, I know it's scary moving to a new place. But Mommy and Shavi have a nice house for you there, and I'm going to see you next weekend, okay? Celia shakes her head. Will Celia get in the car? Can they make it across to Patterson? And what's in store for Francisco? To find out the ending of those last days, head to fictionable.world and sign in. Or subscribe to a year's worth of exclusive short stories and comics from all round the world for £20. Mannheim explores a whole host of exits in her latest collection of short stories, This Way to Departures. But as she got comfortable in her creaky chair, she began by considering how a story like Those Last Days makes an entrance. I feel like it's a good question and I'm not sure I have the answer to it. Francisco sort of appeared out of the blue and he literally appears to my narrator. Obviously, a part of their lives that's not in the story. When she goes back to her childhood neighborhood, which happens to be my childhood neighborhood. Where is that? (laughs) So it's Washington Heights. It's North Manhattan. It's a place that I was very happy to get out of, but I've written about quite a lot. A part of Manhattan that is really not talked about or written about very much except for Lin-Manuel Miranda's In the Heights. When I saw that film, it was incredibly moving to me to see my childhood neighborhood on screen. I've had this thing for quite a while where I've been setting a lot of fiction there, sort of a way to revisit that place and make this place visible that I felt didn't exist to the rest of the world. When I was growing up there, um, a pretty rough neighborhood, it still is when the scene takes place in 2002. You know, I know it's a cliche to say, oh, my character surprised me so much, but they really did. You know, I kind of fell in love with Francisco as a character and with his family, and they all appeared kind of fully realized. I didn't feel like I needed to do a lot of work to know who they were. Again, I was really surprised that Francisco would run into the problems he did because it wasn't something I planned out. I do a lot of automatic writing. I just kind of sit down and see what happens. And this scene really just happens. Yeah, wow. Your Washington Heights and Lin-Manuel's, are they in the same space? Are you kind of writing against In the Heights in some sense? I'm not writing against In the Heights. I mean, I realise In the Heights was a musical and it was a lot of fun. And I was going to say, there's a lot of singing and dancing over there. Yeah, yeah. And it was, you know, one of the things that blew my mind was there is a water ballet scene in the public swimming pool that I went to when I was a kid. And I read to a friend of mine who I grew up with and I was like, you're not going to believe this. It's, you know... That's not how you remember it. <laughs> of course, that's you know, there's some real fairy tale elements to In the Heights, but it is also, you know, about it being a hard place to live. The characters in it also run into all kinds of problems. 
Lin-Manuel Miranda is actually from Inwood, which is the next neighborhood up. It's posh, right? It's not posh. It's, it's, <laughs> it's just less rough. <laughs> He's done a lot to sort of make uptown visible. And I'm really moved by what he does. There's something to be said for not just having gritty drama in the place that you grew up, being able to have a musical that is on the streets of Washington Heights. But you're not afraid of difficult subjects, are you? I mean, in those last days, there's disappearance, there's hints of domestic violence, there's suicide hovering in the air. I'm very drawn to difficult subjects and I'm drawn to reading about them and I'm drawn to writing about them. And I think, what is writing for, if not to expose and share the things that are part of life, which is, for lots of people, difficult yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about the paratext as well, because I was fascinated by your reaction when we suggested Anningen Ed notes that pointed people to places where they could get some help if they had any issues around suicide. What was your thinking there? It was really interesting because I didn't see it as a story about suicide. It's absolutely true that some of the characters talk about that possibility. But to me, it's so clear that this is a kind of mystery. People always see things in my writing that I don't. So, <laughs> you know, and I guess, you know, that, that is part of putting a piece of fiction out there. People sort of bring it into their world and see things in it that you might not. But what's that like for you? I mean, do you want to jump up and down and say you're wrong? So my feeling is that once you put a piece of writing out in the world, you really don't have control over how it's perceived. And I would say about half the time I hear takes on things I've written where I just think like, what? <laughs> That's totally not what I meant. But I still think within reason, people have a right to bring their own interpretation to your writing. So I think it's okay. I mean, obviously, as the writer, I have my own take on it. But I think as we all know, you don't get to follow people around and go, no, 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 you have this completely wrong. <laughs> That'd be creepy. <laughs> There's strong stuff in your latest collection, This Way to Departures, as well. There's paramilitary killings, cancer, rape. Did you think about adding warnings or helplines there? I didn't, partly because it was less usual when it came out. I mean, that's sort of a very recent thing. I like when people talk about content descriptions rather than content warnings, because I feel like people respond to these things in really different ways. And one thing that freaks one person out doesn't freak out another person. And I think that the content description is on the book. One of the stories in that collection is about a character, Hannah, who's trying to tell a story about her childhood, where something really horrible and violent happened one Christmas. And she's living in a place where no one will really allow her to tell this story, where there's basically no audience for it. So she keeps going in and out of trying to tell the story and then describing this like beautiful upper middle class bucolic town that she's living in. I had that experience of feeling like I was just trying to tell stories about the place that I came from and people going, oh my God, this is so brutal. This is so violent. And at the same time, I realized, but other people also have those stories. It is a good thing to tell people what might be in a piece of writing so that they are not disturbed by it in a way that is harmful to them. And at the same time, I think we have to have space to tell stories about the really brutal things that happen to us and other people. 
Is that because that's like a defining characteristic of serious fiction to you, that it's not afraid to look these kind of serious subjects square in the face? I think it's the kind of fiction that I'm interested in. I started a creative writing degree at a point where a lot of American fiction was about upper middle class people having problems that to me seemed like they weren't really problems. You know, it seemed like, okay, you're really bummed out living in your upper middle class suburb. Why don't you move? (laughs) I'm not saying that we shouldn't have that fiction. I'm just saying I'm not interested in it. I feel comforted by fiction and nonfiction that deals with really difficult things. People sometimes ask, what's your comfort read? And it's like, my comfort read is Art Spiegelman's Mouse. And it's Carolyn Forche's The Country Between Us. Those are comforting to me because they are about how brutal the world can be. And also they are about surviving it. But Hannah's answer in the story is that she's leaving, that it's not the right place for her. Yeah, it's a question of leaving a place where you're not allowed to tell your story. People won't acknowledge that you are different from them in some way. And is that something that you relate to? Yeah, it was really satisfying to write that story. The story about the Christmas where something really violent happens is actually a story that I wrote earlier on. I couldn't quite find the right shape to it. And then I sort of realized that the framing for it was Hannah trying to tell this story and not being able to. But that's why it wasn't working. Yeah. And also that I needed the contrast between this very comfortable present and this very, very difficult past, that that's what made the story interesting. But it's not all bad. I mean, like we were saying in Washington Heights, there's a moment towards the end of Dangers of the Sun where the narrator, Mia seems almost abashed about the way the story's turning out. She says, we knew we weren't heading towards a happy ending. Do you think literature, do you think serious literature has a problem with happy endings? I think the problem with a happy ending is that a happy ending is always about where you end the story because it can be happy for a while, but no one's happy forever all the time. Oh, not really, surely. Come on, Linda. It's really funny because I had a conversation about what's the best kind of ending. And I think the best kind of ending is one that's hopeful, but not happily ever after. Because you don't buy that. You think it's a lie. It's not that I think it's a lie. It's, I guess the question is, what is a happy ending? (laughs) Ask Jane Austen. I I, (laughs) I don't really have that much to say about Jane Austen. I mean, you know, it's a weird thing because what's a happy ending then? It's that you have... Married the rich guy. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You've sorted things out in this incredibly stratified, narrow society. So your options for happiness are pretty narrow. You want a little more than that. Yeah, but I don't really like a bummer of an ending. And I don't really go for those either. Some sort of happy medium. I was intrigued by the World's Fair, where Tony and the narrator dream of leaving Queens for real. They'll wish we said goodbye, but they won't come after us. We'll be gone. That's kind of like an inverse of those last days. We're with the people who are planning to disappear together before the event, looking ahead, rather than afterwards, looking back from the outside with no idea of whether or not there was any kind of plan. Do you think of those two kind of like companion pieces? No, I don't at all. So it's another one of those things where it's like, wow, that's a really interesting thing to hear about. I wrote them at such different times. I 
wrote the World's Fair quite a while back and then revisited it, I just really connected it to kind of a teenage desire to leave the place you're from, you know, to just go beyond the limitations that are placed upon you as a young person, particularly if you feel like you're not living in a place that you want to be. I guess there's that thing where we keep returning to the same themes in our writing over and over again. So I can see how they would work as companion pieces because, yes, one of the things I'm really interested in is departing from a place. There's people leaving all over the place in this way to departures. I mean, there's the exiles in the place that he can never return to. There's me and Rini in Danger of the Sun, Hannah, we talked about already in the Christmas story. That's partly because it's something you're interested in, but is that because there are places you can't go back to yourself as well? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, first of all, growing up in a refugee neighbourhood and with refugee parents, the sense of the place that you can never go back to was, you know, very, very big. There's also the fact that the places that we're from change. So you can't really go back to them. I think maybe more so if you're from a city than if you're from a rural area. There are some rural areas that really don't change. But New York has just changed so tremendously. And, and I think of how much London has changed since I arrived there. I mean, it's sort of shocking sometimes to go to a neighborhood where I used to spend time and just see how enormously different it is. So certainly in terms of the place I grew up, I felt like the only way I could go back there was by writing about it. You're right that this experience is much more present in cities and obviously much more present if you've lived elsewhere in the meantime. But I wonder if it's more widespread even than that. Here we are at the beginning of the 21st century. Even if you're sitting in rural Idaho, the world's changing around you anyway. Yeah, absolutely. There is that thing of wanting to go back to the way things were at a particular time, but you don't really want to go back there. You sort of want to be able to view it. You want to be able to remember things about it that were comforting, or even remember things about it that were dangerous, that you escaped or outlived. I wonder if you're actually right. On the left, most progressives are, yeah, very much comfortable with the idea of not wanting to go back because they want to do better, right? But actually that feeling of wanting to go back has become a very urgent political problem. Yeah, and of course it's a fantasy version of the past. It always is. The thing about the past is we know how it all turned out. So that's a way that when we revisit it, it's not dangerous, there aren't as many unknowns. Even when terrible things happen, you know how they turned out. But does that make your project to recover those journeys, does that make it almost a political project? I haven't thought of it as an explicitly political project. There's always a question of what gets classified as political. There's a way in which just making something visible that has been pushed out of the line of sight is, of course, political in its own way. I certainly don't feel like, oh, you know, I wish I was still living in this place in this time. I'm very glad to not be living there. And at the same time, there's this way that you can feel a real longing for it. Even people who think of a time when things were terrible can feel like a real sense of longing for some part of that, like a connection that they felt with other people or a sense of safety that they felt in a moment when things weren't safe. I think one of the things I really struggle with in fiction writing is, is a piece of writing 
quote, political, if it's not mainstream, if it's not what you expect, if it's not, you know, sort of a North London novel about an affair or an American suburban novel about being unhappy over some weird social thing going on in the place that you live. I think if the things that are not mainstream are implicitly political because they are not mainstream, I think that's kind of problematic. Don't you think that's kind of part of the point of being outside the mainstream is to poke it now and then? No, 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 no. I think that poking it, I think that overturning the norm is a really important thing. I guess my question is, is someone who is not part of the mainstream writing about their life, is that political or is it just them writing about their life? Don't we want a world where the narratives are more diverse than they are now? I do. You seem keenly aware of the gaps, right? The gap between the comfortable college where Hannah's a writer in residence and her upbringing. The distance between El Salvador and Miami in Noir or the years between Francisco's disappearance and Ruben sitting in a cafe by Penn Station. Is that because you think that fiction is in those gaps? I hadn't thought of that, but... <laughs> You can just say yes. That's fine, yeah. <laughs> um, I guess that I think distance is one of the things that makes fiction really interesting, having some distance from what you're writing about and that writing provides distance. Even if you're in the middle of something and you're writing about it, you get to see it as an outsider in some way. Yeah, and get up really close as well. There's a characteristic move in the story Missing Girl 5 Gone 15 Months where we hear about a theme park, but we don't hear about it from the perspective of the people visiting. We hear about it from the perspective of the people working there, cleaning the motel rooms and emptying garbage cans, handing out hot dogs. Are those the voices that we need to hear from? This is another one of those things where I didn't see that in my own story, but yeah, <laughs> I can see that. I guess one of the things that I thought was most interesting, I think it was Jimmy Breslin was writing about John F. Kennedy's funeral and all the other journalists were writing about the actual funeral and he went and interviewed the gravedigger. That's the kind of thing that I'm really interested in is what is that perspective like? Because it's much more interesting than the thing everyone is looking at and everyone is supposed to look at. And we'll keep looking for those other perspectives right here. That was Linda Mannheim. To read those last days, as well as brand new stories from Richard Smith, Ariel Markinjack, Robert Newworth and Liam Hogan, hitch your U-Haul trailer to your station wagon and head to fictionable.world. Subscribe for £20 and you'll get a year's worth of exclusive short stories and comics from all over the world, which you can enjoy on your mobile, tablet or laptop computer. You'll also unlock our ever-expanding archive with stories from writers including M. John Harrison, Joyce Carol Oates, Ali Smith, Diana Evans and many more. We always love to hear your thoughts about our podcast, our blogs and, of course, our stories. So add us on Mastodon, Instagram or Twitter or think back to the 1990s and send us an email on info at fictionable.world. If you prefer the audio mode, then you can always record something on your smartphone and send it to us at the same address. You might just make an appearance on the Fictionable Podcast. Next time, Richard Smith gives us the lowdown on his favourite hobby, 
Well, I do spend a lot of time sitting in cafes with coffee and sometimes cake. But no, I'm afraid... And my... reads from his story, Caroli Balance Metaphor. With thanks to Linda Mannheim, that's all for this week. So from me, Richard Lee, and everybody here at Fictionable, thanks for listening and goodbye. Thank you.